Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Today's episode is brought to you by our listeners and supporters over on our Buy Me a Coffee page. Thank you to all who support the show by giving our show a listen, leaving a review or comment, following us on Twitter, or sharing the show with your friends and family. If you want to support the show further, check out our BMAC page for more information. Link will be in the description below. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Into the Night, a Finest of Vegas podcast. I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Every action has a consequence. If you choose the action, you must accept that consequence as well. It is impossible to foresee all consequences of one particular action. To do so would lead to a life of indecisiveness and misery. One could plan and strategize their action to minimize the consequences. But life is interconnected, like ripples on a lake and action will spread and affect others and will spread far enough into too many directions that a action will become irreversible. So even decisions designed to bring forth beneficial outcomes to the majority can give birth to unforeseen consequences. After the events of FFPS, Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place, was set ablaze by Michael and Henry to find destroy William Apton once and for all a net good for nearly every single soul that cursed franchise had touched. But neither could have predicted that their successful ruse to lure the lingering scrap animatronics to their facade pizzeria would bring forth a few bottom-feeding investors looking to scrounge up a quick profit. After an unknown period of time after the fire, several investors revived Fastbird Entertainment. Perhaps Michael was fairly decent at running his own pizzeria, so much so that a few bean counters came out and spread the word when the business was liquidated. Alternatively, perhaps the combination of two fires the same year involving Fazbear locations, that being Fazbear's Frights and Michael's Fake Pizzeria, brought the company into momentary limelight. Whatever the case, the company, despite originally meaning to fade away into obscurity, was brought back 
with a new board of directors and investors looking to cash in on the Fazbear legacy and bring forth a new generation of Freddy Fazbear-loving families. Unlike the previous heads of the corporations, they weren't looking to just entertain children by hosting pizza parties at a small-time arcade, and they weren't looking to be some small-time mom-and-pop shop business like it was originally designed to be. They weren't building a small business, they weren't even really trying to create a children's entertainment business. They were in an empire-building business. As of right now, they had the spotlight, they had the public attention, all they needed to do was control the media, control the message, and they could single-handedly remove all the bad publicity and urban legends of the brand off the map, and plan to control the media. They did. In an elaborate cover-up to discredit everything that Fazbear Entertainment's previous board and investors had allowed William to get away with, and all the corner-cutting and law-breaking the corporation had done to turn a quick profit, Fazbear Entertainment contacted an indie game developer who specializes in developing horror games. In probably the most meta moment in the entirety of Final Fantasy storyline, an indie developer was contracted by Fazbear Entertainment to underhandedly develop a video game based on the brand's mysterious past. This includes a game about Phasma Entertainment's decaying state of obscurity, an event where five children went missing at the hands of a mysterious serial killer, an urban legend surrounding the burning of Fazbear's frights, a dangerous springlock suit, killer robots below the surface, and some strange revenge-slash-redemption plot to burn and destroy robots in a fake pizzeria. In layman's terms, the indie developer had made a mockery of every event we know in Finance of Freddy's history. Every game was designed to make Fastman Entertainment out to be the worst, causing Fastman Entertainment to publicly denounce the game and its developer. Unbeknownst to the public, however, the indie developer has succeeded in making light of Fastbear Entertainment's tragedies. Now that their past become murky and fog, they are all but prepared to offer a clean light and a clear picture of what their brand is all about. Fun, fun, fun. And all they needed now was a vehicle in which to voice their message. And what better way to denounce a video game than by making one of your own? One all about those silly fictional events that never took place or ever occurred on Fazbear Entertainment property. No, 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 this will be an experience like no other, a light-hearted frolic to some strange dark version that was an absolutely squeaky clean brand for your family and kids. No, these were all lies to be laughed at and enjoy. But as I said before, every action has a consequence. Even the best and most profitable decisions can have unforeseen consequences that no single bigwig at Fast Entertainment could ever predict. Even though they nefariously believed they were covering up the crimes of the company and a monster that had run loose in their business's past, they had no intentions and couldn't have foreseen that their actions would unwillingly begin to unshackle a murderous beast from its imprisonment. This is episode 15. Remember Jeremy. This takes us to a small company that develops virtual reality games of the public enjoyment. Silver Paracel Games. By no means a large corporation, it is a proud and faithful group of colleagues and video game developers willing to dedicate their all to any project they are given. Perhaps you recognize their logo. A white rabbit with a blue jester-like suit. 
almost synonymous of the white rabbit from Alice in Wonderland, fit with its silver parasol. One of the lead developers of this company goes through her morning routine in the office. She grabs her third cup of coffee for the day, grabs a notepad and pencil, and takes an ibuprofen as she enters into another weekly meeting about their newest project for the company. Something to do with this whole Phasma Entertainment controversy she had briefly caught glimpses of in the news, and she wasn't the biggest fan of making children's games. When she entered into the small meeting room, her boss, Dale, was just about to begin the presentation of their newest project. Parasol Games was taking on one of their biggest projects they had ever done, and for one of the biggest clients they have ever had. Fazbear Entertainment had contracted out Parasol Games to create the Freddy Fazbear virtual experience. A VR game designed to make light of these silly indie games that had slandered the company's brand. The goal was to take the game concepts of the rogue developer and create their own unique spin on this ludicrous interpretation of events. They even had free reign to create their own scenarios and gameplay elements. They weren't meant to be designing a children's game. They were designing a horror VR game. A project like this could take a year or two to even get off the ground, let alone begin planning AI pathing and development. But Dale had a reassurance for all those involved. The company had sent them over old scrap circuit boards of their characters. According to Dale, the people at Phasma Entertainment had given them exclusive access to proprietary software that could literally take the data and information of old animatronic control boards and upload a digital recreation of the performances and personalities of the characters of the past. That type of technology sounds almost too good to be true. And this female dev knew how long and arduous the development of AI algorithms and character model animation could take. How Vazmir Rutan was able to develop something like that is beyond her comprehension. It's beyond extraordinary, especially given how long the brand had been revived back in 2023. One employee during this meeting decided to express a momentary concern, questioning where these circuit boards even came from. Dale went momentarily silent and began to repeat what he already said. That it was a way to save on budget and expedite the process on developing the pathfinding on the characters. But why were given these old circuits and where they came from? Dale didn't have an explanation. Our female developer didn't like that lack of explanation, especially considering the state of this old looking hardware. I mean, it looked pretty much like junk. And even badly damaged, remnants of charcoal and faint hints of burn marks could be found on the surface on the electronic scrap. Dale was her boss, and it was her job to follow his orders. Her team quickly began scanning the circuit boards with their data banks, while other members of the team began modeling the animatronic characters and environments of the old pizzerias. To her and her team's surprise, there were lingering parts of usable code on the circuit boards. And using the technology that Fastmare Team gave them, that code almost became reactive and alive, knowing where to go and eventually which files and characters to link itself to. It was incredible to say the least. 
And as the development progressed, the team of Parasol Games got more and more comfortable scanning these old circuit boards to look for pathfinding and remnants of AI to more easily develop their virtual characters. It was almost like cheating with a homework website. They were given an assignment to develop these characters, but instead of utilizing, copied the work of another. But it was like cheating with the teacher's permission, given that the client were the ones who gave them this technology in the first place. Now, in massive games like this, often companies will employ what they call quality assurance testing. Quality assurance, QA for short, will play through a title multiple times, writing up detailed bug reports and making notes of any crashes they experience in their test. This testing process will also begin during the early stages of a game and last till post-production. Well, depending on the size of the studio and the content, of course. At Civil Parasol Games, they only have one member of their QA team, a young graphic designer named Jeremy. No relation to Jeremy Fitzgerald, the night guard for FNAF 2. Oh, and no relation to Jeremy from the missing children's incidents. It's just a coincidence that these characters all share the same name. Jeremy, however, began his testing in earnest and reported his bugs directly to our female developer, whom they had an afternoon report with. And thanks to Fastburn Entertainment's technology, early in development they were already. They were already entering into the alpha stage of the game. The character models were almost completed, and the environments were developed. Some members of the team were already coming up with concepts for potential DLC. That was until a few days the breakfast schedule scanned their scrap circuit boards that our female lead discovered that some lingering code well, it wasn't attaching itself to usual files. It would find and group itself into its own separate folder. It was took form by itself, constantly moving between the game data. It was that day that our female developer noticed this, that German began to notice an anomaly in his QA testing. The drawers have been emptied out. Someone was here. I don't think it was spring cleaning either. No, there was plastic on the floor. Someone was definitely here during the night. It had to have been the client. I mean, they sent us that stuff in the first place with no explanation, told us to scan it, said it would expedite the process so we wouldn't need to program any pathfinding ourselves. It was a budget thing, I guess. It was just junk, circuit boards and things like that. Looked pretty old. Somehow though, there was usable code on some of it. It seemed to take hold by itself. Things started changing. But then, he started appearing. At least that's what Jeremy said. Silver Parasol Games had a break-in during development. Out of the blue, no one knew what to think. Randomly things had been moved or stolen from the office, but one curious factor was that all the scrap electronic components that Fast Entertainment had given them were stolen. Not just one or a small cluster. Most, if not the whole collection, had been stolen. It was clear to everyone who worked there that whoever robbed them had their sights on those parts. And the rest of the cases around their office space was only there to make it look like a run-of-the-mill B&E. Our female developer, who we will now refer to as Take Girl given her audio diary, has already made her own conclusion of what was behind the break-in. But she had no way to prove it. 
Dale was certainly not going to bring it up with Fast Entertainment and risk losing one of their biggest clients and one of the company's biggest paydays. Besides, most of the coding was already complete thanks to what they had already scanned. There was really no need for those parts now. Still, the whole thing had Tape Girl on edge. More so now that Jeremy was constantly reporting more anomalous activities from the game. Glitches and bugs that Tape Girl teams simply couldn't figure out where they were coming from directly. Whatever glitches he was running into seemed to have gotten him stressed out. That or maybe the fear and lack of safety in his office had gotten him in a worse state of mind than most. But after a few weeks of development, Jeremy approached Tate to talk to her personally about the idea of having him take some time off for mental leave. Jeremy complained of nightmares when he came in this morning. He wasn't talking about it like someone telling a friend about his dreams, though. He was pale, looked like he hadn't eaten in days. He spent an hour talking in Dale's office, but it didn't look like he was given much sympathy. When he came out, he went directly back to the testing room. He doesn't even jump anymore. Nothing scares him. He just stands there like he's talking to someone. Sometimes he rocks from side to side. We were told to leave him alone. I knew I was in line to do the testing next. They'd been prepping me for it. I guess they knew that Jeremy would need to be replaced soon. Seeing Jeremy go through mental anguish did not have Tape Girl joyful about her new upcoming role as a Timber QA tester, but she was still a dedicated worker and wanted to give her all in the project. She just wasn't happy with how Dale was treating him like garbage. It was clear to anyone he was going through something and needed some time off, yet Dale refused to allow even the smallest amount of mental rest. Which, as Tape Girl lingered on the thought longer, she realized it was extremely odd for Dale to do that. Dale was by no means a shining beacon of leadership, nor was he anywhere close to the room of a friend to any member of Silver Parasol Games. But at the very least, he was reasonable. He didn't treat his employees like machines, he at least understood they were humans, not most robots. But something had changed in Dale. He was already shifty when he presented the game to everyone that first day of the project. An hour or two would be cooped up in his office on the phone, presumably with the client. And it never seemed like a pleasant conversation either, given the volume and intensity of it. But perhaps that was the reason for why Dale was being so indifferent to Jeremy's mental state. His health decline was obvious to all, and his weakness made him an easy target for someone like Dale. Someone who needed a person lower than him to kick dirt on whenever he needed to let loose anger and steam. Because it wasn't just his lack of caring for his well-being, he seemed to actively keep punishing him for any misdemeanor. But Jeremy was late. He got on a trip to the HR. He didn't respond to an email. Then a trip to the boss's office. If his QA tests were found lacking, he was given a write-up for wasting his and the company's time. But as Tape Girl began pondering more and more about Jeremy, she also considered Dale's biggest concern was the company's margins. Losing QA tester is a big loss in late development. And after replacing with one of your senior developers is another time waster. Perhaps there was some other reason for Dale's lack of sympathy. Perhaps it had something to do with that robbery a few weeks ago. And perhaps both Jeremy's mental health and Dale's lack of faith and his long phone calls in his office were all connected in some way.
You can always tell when a company is getting ready to fire someone. They start giving out written warnings for silly things, making sure to build a paper trail and make a case for a firing. Things that normally no one would care about suddenly become grave offenses, all worthy of being written and documented. I guess it works two ways, because it also encourages a person to quit rather than be scrutinized so heavily. I think Jeremy was too far gone to consider that option, though. The thing about it is that I don't think they were going to fire him because of anything he was doing wrong. They just knew he'd seen something. They needed to discredit him. As the days went by, development began to become slower and slower. Everyone saw Jerry walk in and immediately isolate himself into his QA room only coming out when Dale forced him to, or when he was sent to HR for one of his many misdemeanors. The thought of it made Tape Girl sick in the head, and it made it difficult for her to fall asleep. One night, she decided to go into work early, hoping to work her hours before clocking out early to take some time off for herself. As she walked into what she presumed to be an empty office space, she noticed the office supply closet light was on. She passed by the testing room, passing a large observation window, and got close to the supply closet. She couldn't tell if it was from her lack of sleep or the fact that it was so early in the morning, but the light down the hall was shining exceptionally bright. When she entered, the first thing she noticed was black ink splattered all across the workbench. Most of it was centered around what looked to be a guillotine paper slicer. It sounds made up, but it's an actual piece of office equipment. She recognized it from art rooms when she was in school. She was afraid to use them because she thought she could have lost a finger if she wasn't careful. She didn't even know the company had one of these in the supply room. She guessed they were more common in businesses that do a lot of graphic design work. Jeremy used to do design work. She always saw Jeremy walk in before he became... Before he became what he was. There was more black ink on the floor. It appeared to drip from the blade on a large paper slicer. A flimsy mask on the ground. It must have been some strange Halloween mask. It too was covered in the same black ink. She didn't understand what was going on. She was about to pick it up for closer inspection until she heard a shuffle from the testing room next door. There was only one person who ever went inside there. Jeremy. Tip Girl snuck back to the observation window and peered in. She couldn't see his face. The VR visor was covering it completely. From the neck down, he had spilled the same black ink all over his shirt. Some appeared to still be leaking from behind the visor. She couldn't see what he was doing. He was just... sitting there. Slouched back into a chair. His arms were hanging lifelessly by his sides. He quickly shifted his head towards Tape Girl. She hid, but she didn't think he could see her. 
As she peered back inside, she could see a clean outline surrounding his face, an indent or incision. His teeth were completely visible, for there were no lips to hide them behind. In a singular moment, it all began to click to her. That black substance wasn't ink, it was blood. She looked at the ground to see the trail of blood travel from the storage room in the testing room doorway. Jeremy was bleeding all over because... Because that mask wasn't some Halloween mask. Jeremy was committing suicide. He had cut his face off using the paper slice before going back into the testing room. Tigro began to call for an ambulance to hopefully try and save... Whatever was left of him. Whether or not, Jeremy had written a message using his own blood inside the testing room walls. One final message to both the declaration and a warning for those who would follow him. That read, I don't trust you. I cannot say there is any evidence for that. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I heard a pretty heated conversation this morning between Dale, our manager, and someone else on the line. It really feels like this project is in trouble, in no small part because of the lawsuit, I'm sure. There has to be a lawsuit. There's no way there isn't. It happened in this building just a few doors down from me. I think it's made worse by the fact that Jeremy tried to tell us something was wrong. But as a dev team, we all just saw it as a challenge to find what the problem was and fix it. Who could have known that? I have to go. Time passes after Jeremy's death. Silver Parasol Games is raptured in a lawsuit after Jeremy's suicide. From who is suing them, Fast Entertainment, Jeremy's family, perhaps some form of workers' union or law firm is unknown. 
Typical didn't think that the project was going to move forward after his death, nor did she believe that anyone would make her begin Kuwaitis after what happened to Germany. To her chagrin and less so surprise, Dale placed the VR headset into her hands and told her to get to QA testing. She was nervous, of course. The last person who wore this headset, the last person who tested this game, her friend had died in that very room. She got sick, pale, and mentally broken in this very room. To say she was eager to follow in his footsteps would be the most egregious deception. She began her QA testing cautiously, on the lookout for whatever anomaly Jeremy might have seen. Apparently, it was a glitch that couldn't be fully explained, so she meant to prepare herself for what she was going to see. She started up a game mode set in Freddy Fazbear's location from 1993, also known as Final Fantasy 1, and began testing. I saw it for the first time today. There was a character, I couldn't make out who it was, standing at the end of the hall. I thought it was just bugged out, so I made a note of it and kept playing. But then it was looking in the window, and not like Chica or Bonnie would. It was like it was actually looking in the window, seeing what I was doing. This anomaly, as Tapeco describes it, looked humanoid in shape. It was translucent and slow, only moving every other ten frames. It had every definition of a broken model and AI, one that would be easily seen to fix through a quick fix from a development team. But the problem was that every other character in FNAF 1 was accounted for. Freddy was on stage, Bonnie and Chica were wandering around the location, and Foxy was peeking behind the curtains of Pirate's Cove. And the character itself didn't have the bulky shape that all the other Amtrak models they had developed had. Even the fake ones they had made up from sketches they got from some weird logbook didn't have such human proportions. And while she noticed it, she noticed it everywhere. She saw it wander around the gameplay menu area. She saw it explore Fazbear Frights and pick up and observe the various toys in the child's bedroom environment they made. There was nowhere she could go that the anomaly didn't follow. She couldn't wrap her head around it. She took off her headset and took her notes to her development team and began to look through some of the old boxes and whatever they had left from the scrap circuits Fast Entertainment had given them. They had tightened security somewhat since the break-in, and there hadn't been another. Not like losing was a big loss in the first place, though. She went through some circuitry and a few pieces of broken steel and burnt metal. Fast Entertainment were the ones who had given them this. They were also the only ones who could possibly know that they were the ones who had their scrap metal and broken electronics. So they had to be the ones behind the break-in. They either had to know something, or gave them something that they shouldn't have, or some combination of both conclusions. Cape Girl searched through every piece of metal that they had, and looked back at everything they scanned. But she couldn't find any source of the anomaly. But she did find a flash drive that the burglars must have missed during their original break-in. Tape Girl took it back to her cubicle and began investigating. They lied to us. They lied to all of us. They told us that the whole point of this VR game was to undo the bad PR done by a rogue indie game developer who supposedly made up a bunch of crazy stories that tarnished the brand. But that's not true at all. In their haste to develop this VR game and clear their name, 
They sent us some things I don't think they intended us to see. Such as a hard drive containing emails between Fazbear Entertainment and a certain indie developer. Fazbear Entertainment hired the game developer. Those indie games were designed to conceal and make light of what happened. This isn't just an attempt to rebrand. It's an elaborate cover-up. A campaign to discredit everything. Almost like clockwork. The moment Taker was able to uncover this plot by Fastman Entertainment, Dale calls her and every single employee in the meeting room. Dale had a blank expression and spoke slowly and deliberately. With the current lawsuit siphoning the company's funds, they had accepted a buyout by none other than Fazbear Entertainment. He couldn't confirm whether or not everyone on staff would have their jobs during the acquisition, including himself. But he did know that Fazbear Entertainment was no longer satisfied with their handling of the free Fazbear virtual experience, and were currently looking for another VR development team to take over for them. In a week's time, they were to stop all development and await further instructions. I was told I had three days to finish Jeremy's work, but I know it's just passing the time. They don't really expect me to do anything. It's just to keep up appearances until the buyout is complete. We have to look like we have things under control. There's another potential development studio that wants to pick up from here. But who knows what kind of lies they're being fed to convince them to do it. Against my better judgment, I'm going to do my best to see what's here, make notes of it, and try to isolate where this thing is hiding. At least then, the next person that tests this will have a chance of getting rid of it. After the office closed for the night, Tape Girl stayed behind. She swiftly logged in and began developing a secret room for future QA testers, something obscure now that the developers would not notice the file size. But QA tests with a keen eye can find the keys to enter in. She made a simple dark room with an audio menu, and copied over all her audio diary recordings of notes into the game, before recording one last message for future developers. Hello? Can you hear me? Don't exit this room, okay? This isn't a mistake. This room isn't a mistake. I had to hide these logs away from the core gameplay files, in a place that only a beta tester would look, and in a place where the files could be protected. I just really, really hope that the next development team finds this before the game is released to the public. This game has some kind of malicious code in it that we haven't been able to fully contain, or even understand for that matter. We're over budget and out of time. But that's not the reason that we're shutting down. Listen, I have to keep this short so the file size will be small enough to fly under the radar. There are more. They may not be in order. After that night, Tipper returned to the office, but didn't even bother turning the game on for QA testing. She had done everything Jeremy truly needed to do, and it wasn't like any of the other developers were really trying when they didn't even know they were going to have a job in a few days. The final day of the development. Tipper decided to make sure that nobody knows her secret room and check the game's files. She put on the headset again and was able to gain access to her hidden room. Except something was off. Her audio tapes now had a weird purple circuitry coursing across its textures. 
She recognized those same purple circuitry and quickly started to play different segments of the game. Everywhere she went, the game functioned absolutely normally. She took off the headset and took off her computer to check the game's files directly. She couldn't believe what she was seeing. Today was my last day of beta testing, and the anomaly that I've been seeing is nowhere to be found. But after inspecting some of the files, it seems that it's attached itself to these logs. My logs. That can't be an accident. So now I have to make a choice. Do I leave these logs here for you to find? Or do I try to purge this thing myself by destroying the logs? I've chosen the latter. I can't delete them. By creating a protected area to store these logs apart from the game, I effectively gave this thing a safe place to hide itself. It's in here now. I may not be able to delete it, but I might be able to do something else now that it's attached itself. I have an idea. I ran a fragmentation program on the area of memory that was storing these logs for you. I effectively broke the files into pieces and broke the anomaly along with it. That means that you won't have my warnings to guide you, but hopefully it also means that this anomaly, this virus, or whatever it is, will remain broken and unable to do more damage. The next day, Phasma Entertainment fully bought out the company. Development for the Freddy Fazbear's virtual experience was given off to another subcontracted company. And the fate of Tape Girl is unknown. And it is likely that Silver Parasol Games is no longer in business. Before I conclude tonight's episode, I think some clarifying is in order given the storyline of the development of the Freddy Fazbear's virtual experience. As it is a very meta storyline. For starters, I don't think I've mentioned yet that the Freddy Fazbear Virtual Experience is the game Finance of Freddy's Help Wanted. Yes, the game FNAF Help Wanted is also a VR game within the Finance of Freddy's universe called the Freddy Fazbear Virtual Experience. This is important to recognize considering a big part of the game's backstory, what we covered in this episode, involves a rogue a developer creating Slender's games about the franchise's legacy. Now, on paper that sounds an awful lot like Scott Cawthon in the first six FNAF games, especially when you consider that in the actual VR game, when they talk about this rogue developer, they actually show a picture of Scott Cawthon looking absolutely ludicrous. But this doesn't decanonize the franchise nor does it make everything we had talked about previously not canon. Scott Cawthon himself has clarified that he is not in the lore, nor are the indie games that FNAF VR talks about are one-to-one -one with the games that we know. It is nothing but a tongue-in-cheek reference for a laugh. The timeline is still intact and everything that happened in the previous games are still events canon to the story we just went through. While I don't mean to make this sound cynical, this plotline was conceived with the priority of A. Bringing back Phasma Entertainment into the series despite Mike and Henry fully liquefying it, and B. Resisting Fazbear Entertainment from a mockery of Chuck E. Cheese and Showbiz Pizza, instead of making it more so a character for modern-day Disney or other massive entertainment corporations. 
as to why a Silver Parasol Games has knowledge of characters they definitely shouldn't have knowledge of, such as Nightmare Fredbear, Nightmare Yawn, and even Enerder. Those are things that we'll talk about in the wrap-up episode for Help Wanted. With that said, I believe that this is a perfect stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach, and consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, or supporting us on our Buy Me a Coffee page using the link in the description below. Next time, we'll be following the journey of the next QA tester for the Freddy Fazbear virtual experience. A bright-eyed and seemingly normal girl named Vanessa who will unwillingly become enraptured by a sadistic plot that she will be unaware surrounds this game. And we will finally reveal what exactly was this anomaly that infected the VR game, and what it plans to do now that it has attached itself to Tape Girl's audio logs. Once again, I've been your host Nick, and thank you for listening. Have a good night. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.